0: At Marshall's, our buyers hustle to get you great deals on great gifts.
1: Cashmere sweater, nice.
0: You'll get brand name quality gifts for everyone on your list and yourself too. Hello, designer fragrance. More brands, more quality, more gifts for less. At Marshall's, gift the good stuff. Green, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network, we are that corner of the Geek Show dedicated to movies either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graeme Williamson, I'm short filmmaker and columnist for the Geek Show and Horrified.com, the British horror website. I've been joined this week by... Edna yes again, hello. Hello there, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd
1: under the username, of course, Aiden F. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Docco and Drummer. Uh, um, yeah, that's really right about it for me. Uh, film industry worker. Hi.
0: This was a film you pitched to me, wasn't it, Aiden? It's sometimes I, I have a long list of pop star movies that I want to cover, and sometimes I will actively force people to cover them. But this is not one of those, isn't it?
1: Mm, yeah, sometimes it's just as bad as me, to be honest with you, because yeah, I, I forced you to watch uh, 200 Motels when I learned uh, you were doing uh, a movie podcast about pop stars and pop stars and, making films. Yeah,
0: You know, as deeply flawed a movie as that is, it did make me like Frank Zappa's music, so it, it wasn't the pure punishment beating that some of these podcasts have been. Mm. Uh, But this week, um, Iceland. (laughs) Yeah, this week we're off to Iceland because we had been talking about doing a Björk-themed show. I suggested doing the Northman. I'm kind of glad we didn't because although i would seen the Northman, I adore the Northman. I think the Northman is brilliant, but not that much Björk in it.
1: Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Because I I think that's why I was hesitant in it because I'd heard, like, uh, as much as I would love to do... The Northman, I would kill to do another uh, the new Robert Eggers movie. Um, I was a bit hesitant and was just like, mm, well, isn't that just a side performance, though? That, that's the thing. I mean, when compared to, like, Alexander Skarsgård.
0: It's basically a one-scene cameo in The Northman, and it's a great scene, and she's fantastic in it, but, you know, there are meatier roles we can do if we want to mm. talk about Björk. We also
1: suggested Dancer in the Dark. Yeah. um, (laughs) um, The thing is with that is that uh, neither of us like Lars Um, Montreal. So I only think uh, it only makes sense to get someone in who can, you know, advocate for him, I guess is the the appropriate word.
0: I think a Dancer in the Dark podcast with us two would be less of a podcast and more of a sort of group counselling session.
1: Show me on the chart where the Lars von Trier film
0: touched you. <laughs> yes. We, we could, just to extend this further, because you can do this with Björk. She's had a very slim acting career, um, which, which means that you can just sort of, uh, you can just go through a whole CV at the start of a show. You could have done Drawing Restraint 9 by Matthew Barney.
1: Yes, Matthew Barney. Yeah, and um, just as a bit of background context, they were in a relationship for at least, what, a couple of decades or so?
0: It was certainly a while. I think being in a relationship with Matthew Barney is, like, one of the better reasons to do a Matthew Barney film. because I do like Matthew Barney's work a lot, but I never want to act in one of his films. <laughs> oh, so, right. so, so? I would just be, be reading... The script to the script, the fucking script, the <laughs> loops outlined to a Matthew Barney film. Thinking you're gonna, you're gonna get a stunt double for this scene where I have nails put through my genitals and jump in a river of shit, right, Matthew? Aren't you? Aren't you? It's like literally the Princess Amidala meme that I'm turning into with you. Um, hmm. But yeah, I suppose um, if you're going out with him. You can't say no, can you? <laughs>
1: Where's the point in this conversation again? Yeah, Björk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so, no, we decided to, like, avoid all of that. And it wasn't until that I discovered um, that she, in her first acting role, on-screen mm. acting role, in 86, she starred in a medieval fantasy film based on a brother's Grimm fairy tale. Yes. Sign and... me up. <laughs>
0: This is the juniper tree, uh, which is the subject of today's podcast, directed by uh, Nietzsche Keen. Yes, mm. I, I've i never heard of the word Nietzsche. As a were her parents big fans of German philosophy, we may never know. I
1: don't know, but um, Nietzsche Keen is not the kind of filmmaker who you would hear a lot of by because she's had a very unproductive career. In fact, I think she just she, she was a died lecturer at one
0: Terribly time. young, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was in yeah. her early fifties when she
1: died. Uh, and but she was also known as a lecturer um, as well at the University of Wisconsin.
0: We end up talking about a lot of uh, of filmmakers who become lecturers, don't we?
1: Yeah, because we just done like the director's uncut episode of Alexander the Kendrick, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, it's weird, isn't it? I'm sure Monty Hellman's probably done some lecturing as well. I would I would love to get Monty Hellman's secrets on how to have a completely insane film career. Mm. But yes, um so so we did the June Nipper Tree, which I, I would have to say one of the pleasures of this film is realizing that considering that it's a child role for Björk considering that it's before like it's before she even formed the sugar cubes really yeah um, it's,
1: it's it's funny that, not it because you know because you, you could find it kind of slot that in in that phase of her career where they, and this is this kind of Björk who released like a debut album when she was 12 years old yeah which is like you know she's done some wild things in her, in her life, but
0: um that's her debut like, album, not her album debut. N- not, not, not her, her album year. debut <laughs> yeah yeah
1: so there, there's two debut debuts, I know um
0: yeah, but considering all this, it is pretty on brand for her, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah like I'd be really concerned if when she was young she was in the Mickey Mouse Club or something.
1: This is not mm. that. Yeah. Um, Because, trust me on this, this is a very dark film. No kidding, yeah. Very, very dark. I and mean, in, in the standard way that a lot of folklore films are, I guess. And,
0: and
1: that's the kind of thing that we were sold on, because there was just, like, an element of, I, I guess, folk horror to it that, I guess, entranced yes. us. But to some degrees, you know decent, other degrees, we'll get on to it in a minute, but I, I guess like a plot synopsis is indeed for people who don't know the yeah. story behind the juniper tree.
0: Yes. Uh, this, the actual story of the juniper tree, interestingly enough, is, is kind of an intertext in it. I mean, I wasn't familiar with the fairy tale before I watched it, but that doesn't matter because the fairy tale is present as a story. One character tells the other rather than an Mm -hmm. adaptation. Uh, The story is actually about two sisters, uh, two young girls, Margaret and Cadler. Margaret is played by Björk, who go on the run after their mother is uh, executed for witchcraft. And it's one of those things, isn't it, that when you watch a modern film you yeah, know, modern-ish. Mm-hmm. This is this is, you know, made it was released in nineteen ninety. You watch a modern film about the witch trials, you expect that it will have a strict rationalist perspective on it and say mm-hmm. that, yeah. you know, this was just a, an unjustifiable offence against women. But I think I
1: think the definitive yeah the definitive example of these there's countless films like that, whether that would be like Dave Rath by Carl Dreyer or uh, mm-hmm. Witchhammer, Witch Hammer, of course examples. Yeah. Lord.
0: Yeah. Um I think purely in terms of, like, examining witch hunting as as something that existed and had institutional power, I think witch hammer is hard to beat. You know, that's mm. the that, that's the one that gets you to understand the real injustice of it. But it turns out that Catla at least does actually have magic powers in this. Hmm. Hmm. Which is interesting. And, it reminds me a bit of the way that, again, Robert Eggers, it reminds me of a, a, a bit of the way that The Witch blurs the lines around that.
1: Yeah, yeah, because there, there are fantastical phas, phantasmagoric elements to this, which mm. is kind of strange, and you don't get that with, say, like this film that is, you know, black and white, obviously in low budget, of course, all across like the rural of Iceland, mm. like the whole of it, Um and it just gives this film like a unique flavour, I guess. Um, but we'll get on to.
0: Yeah, even at its darkest, it does have an authentic kind of fairy tale feel, and I appreciated that. There were lots of people mm. doing sort of dark versions of fairy tales, but when you actually like look at the structure of the narrative. They're more like a horror film or a dark fantasy film or a superhero film because mm. fairy tales have all these weird uh, narrative structures and narrative rules that yeah, don't yeah, resemble I g- movies. I
1: guess I guess popularized in, in recent times. I'm not saying this is like the definitive example of this, but you know, like say someone like Guillermo del Toro would do with Pant's Labyrinth.
0: Yeah, and pa- pant's Labyrinth yeah. has tons of stuff like that. Like if you were watching Pan's Labyrinth with a book, with a copy of Save the Cat in your lap, you will complain that that bit with the toad does not affect the plot at all. But, you mm. know, that's a fairy tale structuring beat. The heroine has to go on more than one quest, otherwise it isn't a proper fairy tale.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and with The Juniper Tree, I don't know where I stand with it, really. Mm. It's, it's one of those odd films that... Um, you know, there's plenty of it that I admire about its craft, but it's one of these films that honestly is just so... I, I don't know whether Finn's like the appropriate word for it or mm. say something like vague. I don't know. It is it, it is an interesting one.
0: I, I I think it's good that you use the word admire there. I found myself definitely admiring it more than I liked it, but I liked it a lot. I think if it was made now... It would perhaps look like someone riding that Guillermo Del Toro, Robert Egger's band wagon a bit too hard. But for this to mm, come out in yeah. nineteen ninety, there's not much that's comparable to it. And you you would have to assume that uh Nietzsche Keen is, is going back to, you know, the hard stuff. She's basing this on fairy tale-based films made by Bergman and Dreyer, or books by mm. Angela Carter, you know, the the heavy stuff.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't again, like um, I, I don't know when these two episodes are gonna uh, come out to hey, each other. So neither do you.
0: I, you I've run the <laughs> show.
1: <laughs> um so, but no, it reminds me of how um the looseness of structure, you know, is comparable in say like something as different as Tulane Blacktop, mm. but at the same time, you know, the, you know, they're both pretty aimless films, but um but there's, there's something about it that's obviously quite intriguing. And I guess that comes down to the fact that, obviously, with the looseness of the structure, with all its, like, you know, English dialogue, because it is a film spoken in English, despite it being Icelandic. Um, mm. There's just something quite eerie about it, quite unsettling.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it might have been more atmospheric if it was done in Icelandic. I had a problem oh, with that in yeah. a way that I didn't really with the North Man, but uh, it does come up with a remarkable level of atmosphere and creepiness despite that.
1: I completely agree about the Icelandic thing. I think if that if there was one thing that honestly would have heightened the unearthliness even more, mm. it would have been had to be in a language that obviously you know, neither of us can speak. So...
0: Yeah, and more importantly that the cast can I mean Björk mm. speaks very good English in this, but you can tell that it's trained, you know, it's it's not quite something you that got, she's yeah. expressive in, which she, she certainly yeah. is in the North Man. She speaks English very passionately in the Northman, but she's had decades to get used to it.
1: Mm. And you got to remember with Bjork is that once she left, and this is me being nerd, I'm sorry. But, do it, do uh, it. It's what the podcast is for. Bjork uh, actually, I think, moved over to London for a little while. Obviously, I think it was in the debut era, uh, mm. debut as in first uh, proper, proper studio album. Not I'm long, sorry, I
0: opened this box. <laughs> um,
1: uh, so that kind of era and uh, I, I think she ended up developing a cockney accent weirdly enough but um during that time but there's <laughs> just yeah it's uh but no, it's, it's, it's hear, interesting
0: i would love to hear that Björkney.
1: yeah it would be it would be interesting <laughs> anyway yes. yeah
0: yeah um perhaps people less familiar with Björk would like an explanation on why she has a debut album and an album debut?
1: Hmm. Uh, because we were going into this because she um, didn't we just go into this actually, Graham? You, are you sure you want to? Well, we, we did. We, te-
0: we've mentioned that it happened, but we haven't explained that debut was basically her first post Sugar Cubes album, right? mm
1: mm-hmm. Right. Um. And. Uh, Before she obviously became, before even any of that, before the sugar cubes, before the juniper tree, before the hefty like,
0: Mm. uh,
1: so hefty solo career that we'll get into, I'm sure we'll get into in a minute, she actually recorded a debut, uh, another debut album when she was 12 years old.
0: Yes. She has a, a pretty impressive kind of... There, there is a prehistory, I guess I would say, to Bjork's musical career. Um, I, I do love the fact that when she was 11, she formed an all-girl punk band called Spit and Snot, which <laughs> basically means We Are The Best is a pick of her, really. But, yeah, uh, we should talk about our feelings about Björk, I think, because, like I say, you were pushing very, very hard for us to do a Björk episode of Pop Screen, and there Um, is a reason for that.
1: Because, I, I, yeah, I've become a massive Björk head, to be honest. Yeah. Um, And it's kind of interesting because, you know, Björk, when you look at her from the offset, because I'm not into, like, say, uh, the kind of um, Euro pop, Scene. Mm. And I'm not, and I hate to obviously put you know Bjork in that same canon as that, but it's just I don't know. There's just something about you know say something like Eurovision or things like that that just puts me off. Yeah. For a while, and it, it, it's and it's partly because of that competition aspect that I find with it. Um, but with with her music, there's just something so potent about it that I I just really do love. I mean, listeners, people might know is that I actually went to Iceland not that long ago. Well. Oh yeah, I remember that actually Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's firstly Gorgeous country, if you ever want to go there Please do, it's, it's absolutely mm. beautiful Um, But on the way over I was actually listening to Homogenic yeah. uh, Which is a third studio album And Homogenic is the Perfect album to listen to If you ever want to go to Iceland <laughs> um, Because it, it feels like The whole weight of like Love, life, everything like that Is on the weight of, you know One's shoulders, where you've got tracks like they're crooning over like electro beats and like, you know, break beats and things like that. It's just there's just something extraordinary about it that
0: I love. It's the one with all this full of love on it, isn't it? Homogenic. Uh,
1: you know, let me just quickly double check. I think you're right. I know a yoga's in it. Um, yeah. See, this is me painfully researching now. And
0: man uh, looks things up on the internet.
1: Yes, it is. It is all. is full of lovers on it. Yeah, you're
0: right. Which has that astonishing Chris Cunningham video with the Björk bots on the production (laughs) line, which is like... I I think the one thing Chris Cunningham has done that isn't completely horrific. So I I think it's nice to see there's another side of him, you know? Mm,
1: Yeah. Um, But no, I'm a pretty huge huge Björk fan um, now. And again, there's just something that... You know, I just love to with music, but honestly, you can never tie you down into one place, I feel. And mm. um, that's what I appreciate about her. Um, how about yourself? Graham? She's
0: someone who, I guess it's similar to how I feel about films. She's someone I respect a lot, but I've never quite made the jump to fan status. And I think that's because uh, I always bracket her in a strange way with Nick Cave, and I realise that sounds <laughs> mad, but... When you you sort of think about it from the perspective of when I was young, in the mid-90s, they both had big hits with something that is, like, an inch away from being a novelty song. Nick Cave had Where the Wild Roses Grow Out at that time. Mm, and with,
1: yeah, with Kylie Minogue, yeah.
0: And Björk had It's Also so Quiet, and they were both, like, bigger hits than what had come before and they were the first songs by those artists I'd ever heard and I did not like them um hmm. I obviously I grew back towards Nick Cave I do love Nick Cave now with Bjork it took a bit longer but there are certain songs and albums that I really like I think Vespertine is wonderful
1: yeah it's what uh, yeah that, that's one of the ones that obviously comes up in conversation if you want to rank like and funny enough, that's one of the few Björk albums I haven't listened to yet. Um, I haven't listened to Vespertin yet.
0: I think there is a, a real, like, simplicity and beauty to it, which is sometimes what puts me off Björk is the sort of everything and several kitchen sinks approach to, to some of it. It's like, there's a lot of ideas coming at me and I would like to ha- have a bit of space to understand them a bit better, you know? Fair enough, uh, yeah. But Vespatine isn't like that. I found out when I was researching this podcast why it sounds like it does, and it's a wonderful explanation. I think it gets to the heart of why Björk is unique, because no one else would have thought of this as the base for an album. Uh, mm. It was when MP3s were just taking off, and mm. she realised that the compression of the sound made like music that's recorded with a big orchestra or a huge backing band or some other like surplus of instruments tended to sound really squashed and murky on early MP3s. So Uh she wanted to make like the simplest, clearest album she could with the most minimal instrumentation. And then it doesn't matter if you're listening to it on a top-of-the-range sound system or an MP3. It always (laughs) sounds good. And I think that's brilliant.
1: It's sort of like one of those nerdy, nerdy, nerdy technical technical things that you know that you can't help but appreciate. Pro- yeah,
0: that somehow produces this really organic music. It's like I can imagine someone else thinking that and coming up with something that sounded really boring and academic. But vespasian is so organic and emotional. And I think it, l- listening to it again and thinking back to it in preparation to this podcast, it has made me realise that. Ultimately, Bjerk's music is always massively emotional, even when I don't quite like it. Mm. I think there is a depth of feeling to it that I really like.
1: No, no, and I think that's what hooks me to it. I, mm. I, you know, even when you're looking at something, as, like, even like, say, something as simple as um, 93's debut or homogenic, I, I honestly think is the best example of that. Even for something as weird as like medulla, do you know medulla?
0: Heard of it? Um, yeah. Which one's medulla?
1: A cappella record.
0: Oh right. Okay. Yeah. 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 And that's
1: a weird album because a cappella is one of the one of those few genres of music that honestly is such an acquired taste that sometimes it just feels like a wheel of noise, but with the human mouth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know what I
1: mean? It, it's just like. You know, this is not, if you're not into this, don't listen to it, basically. Um, but no, that's an interesting one that I kind of like. Um, it's not like, probably not my favourite, but it, it is sort of fun, I find.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I suppose uh, before she came back to acting briefly with the Northman, her music had led her to be directed by another great modern director, her concert film for the Biophilia album was directed by Peter Strickland.
1: Oh my god, that is a combination, mind. I know, right? (laughs) I can't even think of like a better example of that, to be
0: honest. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That's incredible.
1: How did he get on that?
0: I don't know. I don't know how uh, that happened, because it was quite early in his career, too. He'd done Barbarian Sound Studio, but it came out at roughly the same time as the Duke of Burgundy. It's like, now I suspect a lot of people would want Peter Strickland to direct their concert films, but Björk got him nice and early.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, Biophilia was actually one of the albums I listened to in preparation for this because I hadn't because ah. well, I could, and that's that's an interesting one because it, it, I wouldn't say that's my favourite one because that's the one with crystalline on it, and I do love crystalline. I think that's a banger of a song, mm. but I don't know. It's 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 one of those ones where I just find like I don't know maybe some of the in- instrumentation could be, even though yes it is melodic and you know things like that. There's, there's just something about it that, honestly, it might be a bit too overlong or, I don't know, maybe, like, the writing could have been a bit more flavoursome or say something like that. Um, it, that was the one... Yeah,
0: yeah, it is one of the albums that does... that I was thinking of when I said that thing about earlier about there just being too much going on in a Björk album for me sometimes.
1: Hmm, and I think that's the problem with that album. I, I totally agree.
0: Mm yeah, I think I have grown to to be fond of her, if only as someone who was who must have been offered a thousand and one chances to completely sell out. Right, I'm sure there's mm. no one who desperately wants her to continue making really obscure and challenging music, but she has done it for longer than you would think possible,
1: mm. and. Going into how she fits in with the juniper tree, because we, you know, we have to go back on topic.
0: Mm. Um,
1: how did you feel she w- was in this film?
0: Because I think it's a good performance, actually. I remember mm. I-, I have watched Dancer in the Dark a long time ago, and I felt she was kind of stiff in that. But I don't know, like, I'd, I'd written that off as her just not being an actress, but I think it's actually probably that Lars von Trier likes to write. One-dimensional tragedy dolls for his female leads, mm-hmm. and you know, not everyone can be as good as Charlotte Gainsbourg is as making those feel like real people for a bit, you know. Mm, yeah. Um. But with this, it there's just some sort of humanity to her. Yeah,
1: that comes across really, really well, even when you know she's like talking to Catler or, um, you know, having like getting entranced by uh johan mm. etc there's just something about her that honestly that i do really like That um even when it comes to like say like uh even for something as like simple as like walking from point a to point b across like a waterfall like behind yeah. a waterfall um you know you're doing that in iceland as well so that there's just something so inherently yerk about it but i just love it
0: it's a very scenery-heavy movie, isn't it? Which I enjoy, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it's got that sort of odd mix where I guess, again, if you did this now, it would be different. Maybe if you did it now, there would be a more kind of naturalistic feel to the acting. But it's got a mix of very harsh nature and performances that are deliberately quite mannered and quite odd. And it reminded mm-hmm. me a lot of things like uh, Dragon's Return, that great Slovakian film.
1: Oh, yeah. I've never seen that. I would like to. In fact, it, it does remind me of, like say, like a title that second run would put out, actually.
0: It's very second run, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yeah. <laughs> um, I never thought about that. That's weird. <laughs> yeah but it's like it, it, it's a slightly older style of acting but i don't think it's bad acting i think people can often make that mistake when they see stylized acting but mm. it communicates the feeling and it's consistently of a particular style
1: and when it goes to dark places it really does go for it i mean yeah there's no hold, there's no holding back um And even with, say, some of the surreal elements, because we actually see Catler remove, like, the piece of, like, clothing to reveal, like, a black hole in the middle of a chest.
0: Yes, which Maggit sticks a hand into, which is a motif that recurs in the North Man, which is amazing. It's all coming full circle.
1: Yeah, it's just... And and no, I'm not saying like, because when people say like a hole in the chest, oh, you mean like a flesh wound? No, not a flesh wound, a literal (laughs) black hole. (laughs) Like, I'm certain like this universe is going to be sucked into it at any second.
0: I wanted to pull a hand out and find like the video cassette from Videodromes. Oh, that's weird. Didn't know that was in this movie. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But I love that little bit because it is just like a complete what the fuck kind of moment that just flips the whole film on its head.
0: Yeah. The the other thing like that that I thought was incredible, just such a powerful image, brilliant, is um, the scene with the apparition of their mother on the rocks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which reminded me very strongly of two things, and I think that if when you say these two things, you think, blimey, that's a span. It reminded me of Linda Darnell appearing as the Virgin Mary in King Vidor's The Song of Bernadette. Mm. Uh, and it reminded me of Marjorie Cameron as the water witch that Dennis Hopper sees in Night Tide by Curtis Harrington. Oh, God, Night Tide. Yeah, I have seen Night (laughs) Tide. Um, And that's a film that, honestly, I I think
1: it definitely has its flaws because it it is Mm. not a great... I I wouldn't even call it like... Because that was also um, a film that Nicholas Winding Refn just rediscovered.
0: (laughs) It It was on Nicholas Winding Refn's streaming service for usually correctly lost films. Yes.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, and to be honest, that's probably one of the least worst offenders found on that uh, <laughs> <laughs> streaming service, because honestly, it's not actually that bad. Yeah, in terms of, like, crituit, quote-unquote, gratuitous content, because there's hardly any.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's not actively racist, which puts it above a fair bit of what the shit he's put out on that. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's just kind of clunky and dull, really. But um...
1: Yeah, I think that's my problem, with it. yeah.
0: But I do like that someone can bridge the worlds of the Virgin Mary and Marjorie Cameron, who was a literal, actual fucking witch. I think when when something can remind you of both of them, it's got some power to it. Mm
1: -hmm. And like I said, going back to the juniper tree, I mean, it does have that dark folklore-like story to it that Mm. um, we have to bring up, because even when... um, because there's a there's an underlying there's an undercurrent I should say that um, Jonas the uh, the child of the um, farmer who uh, the both the girls run to yeah um, can see right through Catler. he can't accept her as like the new stepmom yeah and of course since she's a witch um, obviously this ends very badly for Jonas in that he falls off a cliff dies. And then she ends up cutting off her pinky finger, stitches his mouth shut. Yes. And by this point, I, I was pretty certain, you know, I had stuck on something incredibly more sinister because nowhere, now you do kind of do get like a sense that it's going to go like somewhere dark because of the oddity of it.
0: Yeah, there's, there's the same heavy time, intimations of, of death from the beginning.
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah, it's kind of like you say, like like that second run title that you mentioned earlier, crossed with like saying Mar Bergman or say someone like that. It's ben yeah,
0: Bergman-y, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um and that's one that is another moment that I think really does stick out well.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because I suppose that's When I try and think about why Keane would have been directing this, I assume you cannot be a feminist making a film about fairy tales in the 80s and not be aware of Angela Carter, right? I I assume Mm. that's impossible. And that is one of the areas where I, I can see it clearly uh, as kind of a reclamation of the the fairy tale narrative that normally when you've got a kid's stepmother who is a witch who has entranced the older boy but is seen through by the younger boy, normally that young boy is the hero. Normally that young Mm. boy is the one who saves the day and gets away with everything. But not only are we not seeing the film through his eyes, yeah, he ends up getting wrecked.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of the twist that I can, I do like about it because even with its like I guess vagueness or like looseness mm. that you get from the, the stiffness that you do get from the film, it definitely has a strong sense of identity.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't
1: think you you can't take that away from it.
0: Yeah, I was shocked to find out that uh, King was uh, American because mm-hmm. this just because old... you... Very authentically Scandi, I think. Yeah, and that's that's interesting that because, um,
1: Keen. Now I just brought this up because obviously, yeah, as you were saying, Boston, raised in America, Boston, Massachusetts person. Um, so just make the question: Why she would go out to Iceland like this and do something like so admirable? Really.
0: It's very strange, isn't it? I mean, I know that American independent film back in the 80s wasn't as careerist as it became. You know, you haven't had... Like a decade before, yeah. Yeah, you haven't had stuff like Reservoir Dogs showing you that you can make a genre movie that gets into Sundance and become a superstar director after it, which... Um, You know, I love Reservoir Dogs, but in terms of its influence, it persuaded a lot of people who should be nowhere near a camera that they could do it as well. Mm. Um, So, yeah, maybe there's just, you know, maybe it's like I'm... Uh, American independent director, I'm a woman at a time when Hollywood isn't giving many female directors jobs, why not make my black and white Icelandic film? It's not like I've got any great commercial prospects elsewhere. There Mm. there is a kind of freedom to it, a kind of fuck it sense of, yeah, why why don't I do this completely mad thing?
1: And and that's why, why I say it's admirable, because there's just... Something about Keane's personality that sadly, of course, you didn't have like a prolific career. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, just looking at this, there's only really this that stands out on a CV. Everything else, you know, it I is in- so obscure that yeah,
0: I am intrigued by. Uh her last film, Barefoot to Jerusalem, which I think is... Um, there's a point in this plot synopsis where it starts to sound a bit less traditionally sundance Let me see if, if you can work out where it is. Barefoot to Jerusalem is the story of a woman's journey after her lover's suicide through a solitary landscape which brings her into battle with the devil. <laughs> My tone of voice might have given bits of that away to you, but there's definitely a point where that takes a turn, I think.
1: (laughs) Yeah, fuck you, Robert Redford.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well done to her, I think, on on remaining incredibly metal to the very end.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But no, that's brilliant. And um, with the tune of a tree, you can definitely see that because there is just such a again, as we were saying before, strong identity to it, that um, honestly, for an Icelandic film for its time, you wouldn't necessarily expect.
0: I'm not sure I would expect an Icelandic film of this time. I'm sure they must have had an industry. They must have, but... um...
1: That's interesting, because I think the only Icelandic director that I can think of, who, and, you know, there's many directors Mm. out there who can just be, you know, one director per country, whether that'll be, like, Aki Kaurismaki for Finland, or Almodovar yes. for Spain, and it, it, unfortunately it's a stereotype. But I think uh, needs to die, really.
0: Yeah, completely.
1: Um, but unfortunately, I, I have to bring this up the only like Icelandic director who you know you can bring to mind is like Baltasar Yeah,
0: yeah, and and That's, even he's yeah. like mostly notable at this point for his Hollywood films, which is a shame because I've seen some of the Icelandic ones and enjoyed them a lot. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Um. I agree. Yeah. I hope you know there. There's obviously there'll be more to you know Icelandic cinema. Mm. I
0: know
1: you know because you can reference like so many actors who um have starred in films, no less Björk. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: No, it's 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 very strange, but I I think Icelandic culture in general has a certain hipness and a cachet to it that it didn't really have when the Juniper tree was made. Largely, because a large part of that sort of cashier and hipness is because of Björk. <laughs> mm. But yes, um, I think the more we've talked about this, the more I've come to, I've settled on the opinion that I actually rather like this film.
1: Mm, no, I agree. I think it's one of those films that I think needs to marinate within you, isn't it? Yeah. The more you think about it.
0: It's not um, out to be liked immediately. It is very austere and cold, and it does have that Bergman influence. But I think when you sort of roll it about in your head, it's it's hard not to be impressed.
1: In in a very similar way. I mean, I'm not saying this is like uh, like a comparison, even though I probably would see like I don't know, like a duet between the two or a double bill. It reminds me a little bit of how people describe withnail and I. How that, that needs I to...
0: didn't expect that sentence to end there, but go on.
1: Um, how it needs to, um, again, marinate within you before you can get a full sense of what the film is, I mean.
0: Yes, a fair point, yeah. Yeah, no, I think, do you have any other observations or shall we leave that on that uh, uncharacteristically wholesome and positive note? Uh,
1: I'm just looking at my note here, um, looking at the credits, uh, it says there's a folk music collector. Okay. Does anyone know Does anyone know what that means? Or uh,
0: the Juniper Tree? I, I don't know. I, I guess there are those people like Alan Lomax who make a career of archiving traditional folk songs. I wonder if they had someone advising them in that capacity maybe. It's a it's a very
1: yeah, it's a very odd title. It's a very odd title, isn't it? Because you won't expect and again, that's the only thing that you expect from Fairy Sale Cinema to have credits like that.
0: Yeah, fair point. Yeah. Yes. Um... Uh,
1: but no, the, the the Juniper tree, I think it's um very worth digging out because for say something that is early for Bjork's acting career. Because you've also got to remember that Bjork was only what, in the early 20s when she filmed this? Because it was filmed in 86.
0: Oh, she was tons get... younger than that, yeah.
1: She filmed in 86, didn't get released till 90... 90... Sorry. It's a long night, sorry. <laughs> 1990, yeah. It didn't get, it didn't get released until it got released. Ah, fair so that's point. A yeah. four year... There was a big four-year gap in between this, and obviously three years after yeah, that, just... the debut would drop.
0: Yeah. I've just worked that out actually. Yeah, she'd have been in her early twenties when she made this, which is incredible as she does look about 10 years old in it. <laughs> so uh yeah, I think that about wraps it up. Um my my revelation that Björk never gets any older has uh <laughs> yeah, that's thrown me a bit. Um so if you enjoyed this podcast uh you can get a bonus episode every month on our patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash geek show along with other stuff uh, including my doctor who reviews which come out twice weekly but until next week i've been graham and i've been Aaron. and we'll see you next week for more pop screen Grand Canyon University, a Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering over 250 engaging programs online. Praised for its culture of community, students engage with faculty and connect with counselors who take a personalized approach for your success. GCU's online students received over $144 million in scholarships in 2021. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you qualify for. Find your purpose at
1: Grand Canyon University.